It was a time when pro wrestling was a pop culture phenomenon. Talk about your songs, talk about John 316. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Pay-per-view quality matches live on free TV every Monday night. Monday, July 6th. Back at the battle between WCW Monday Nitro and WWF Monday Night Raw. It's me, Austin! Oh, son of a bitch! What? It's me, Austin! It was me all along, Austin! This is Reliving the War with Simon Tackler and Nims Azul. You can call this the new world order of wrestling, brother! Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Reliving the War. It is the podcast where we go through pay-per-views of the Monday Night Wars. We've done a full year of it. My name is Nims Azor, joined, as always, here on the Grey Wolf Wrestling Network by my tag team partner, Simon Tackler. Simon, this one is, well, this is one of the few pay-per-views that we've covered where the hype behind it is unlike any other because a lot of people have called In Your House Canadian Stampede probably the best WWF pay-per-view of that era. Yeah, one of the greatest pay-per-views of all time. And I've got to say, we've been hyping this up too. We've referenced it quite a bit in the lead up saying, oh, we can't wait to Canadian Stampede. That's one of the greatest pay-per-views of all time, even during the bad shows that we watched last month. And even I was saying, like, this is when everything really gets going for the WWE. So for me, the the bar was set really high, and I'm going to say it lived up to the hype. This is the best definition of all killer, no filler. We've said it before. This is also, sadly, the final two-hour WWF pay-per-view because from then on, it moved to the three-hour format for the uh, the In Your Houses. I think Ground Zero was the first three-hour In Your House. Actually, yes, it is. Um, But let's start off with Canadian Stampede because the intro was very, very interesting to me because the entire... It pretty much sets up the story, what we've seen for the past year, which is the fall of Bret Hart and the rise of Stone Cold Steve Austin and the way that the announcer words it it's like this is a bizarre world where hero is a food and a and a stone cold killer is cheered <laughs> it was really really cool it was great and it also not only um sort of encapsulated this feud of canada versus usa but this almost acknowledged that the wwe is changing and there's a new vibe and up is down and good is bad and right is wrong and mm. now we're in canada where they like the bad guys this felt like okay, this isn't the same WWE anymore. And yeah, I think, I know we've said at different points, oh, this is the turning point. This is the turning point. I think legitimately, this is the turning point for the WWE. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because if you, and go back and when you go back and watch this intro, there's a little recap later on where they throw back to the Royal Rumble and it looks like a completely different company. But uh, we'll get to that bit when we get to that bit. But uh, first of all, can I just say before we get to the first match, before Hmm. the opening video, we had the little, um, you know, signature intro, the WWE worldwide leader in sports. Was this a new one? Was this the first one that had the, uh, in over 50 countries 50 countries a billion people watching a week was this the first time we've seen that i feel like we've seen that one before okay um but it's it's relatively fresh yeah cuz that one sticks out to me yeah because cuz it, it Previously to this, it was the World Wrestling Federation for over 50 years where it had the old block logo. Whereas this, it actually looked much like the Attitude signature. Yeah. Remember with the, with like the, it was all in your face. The font is edgy, things <laughs> like that. So edgy fonts in 1997. And also stuff. the stat of over a billion viewers a week. I've never understood <laughs> how that's even possible, but they said it. <laughs> The thing that really let them down in that little signature, at least I thought, it was just like over a billion fans in 50 different countries in seven languages. It's like, really? You couldn't bump that up a couple more languages? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but um, first off, when we before we get to the first match, I do need to mention two things. One, Vince McMahon is pumped. It's the, the welcome, everyone. He is just through the roof in terms of his energy. And also, what the hell were they wearing? They look like um, they found the leftovers from Spring Stampede from uh, <laughs> the, the WCW wardrobe. 
I loved it. This is one of the rare times. Like I'm trying to think when the WWE announces were in the gimmick of the show. Obviously, there was WrestleMania 9 where they were all in togas at Caesar's Palace. And then there was this where because they were at the, the Calgary Stampede, which is like a big rodeo. The Saddle thing. Dome. Yeah, in the Saddle Dome. They were all dressed mm. as cowboys. Vince McMahon was wearing a cowboy hat and a vest. Jerry Lawler wasn't wearing his crown. He was in a gigantic hat. It looked mm. like the hat Homer Simpson wore when he had the camera in it going to the quickie. <laughs> Ten gallon hats. Ten gallon hat with the camera in it. I don't want to know what Jerry Lawler would be filming with a hat. The best part was the best part was it, Vince looked so pumped to be dressed up as well. It's just like I get to wear a costume tonight. I think that's him being able to stick it to JR because you know the story goes that he wanted him to wear a hat and JR wouldn't wear it. So Vince got to say, "Look how happy I am! I'm a cowboy." <laughs> oh, we'll get to our first match, which is Hunter Hearst Helmsley versus Mankind. There's a nice little video recap which sort of covers their history there and. Um, we we find out like last last time, obviously Triple H went and won King of the Ring. He's very much leaning towards the DX era of Triple H, but there's still a couple of hangovers of Hunter Hearst Helmsley here. Uh, Mankind is absolutely the clear fan favorite here, and you forget. Actually, you don't really forget this, but you can sort of see why Mick Foley and Triple H had such a great and long rivalry because it's magic when those two step in the ring this i actually like this match better than the king of the ring match oh i thought so too this match was really really good faster pace than the king of the ring match i think brutal the, too the, yeah a really great brawl and i think the crowd was i think because they've gotten to know mankind better as a face by this point they've seen all of those sit down interviews with jim ross so i mm. think Mankind being more over as a face, Triple H leaning more into the brawling side and dropping a lot of that, you know, technical blue mm. blood grew up with wrestling Tudor style. I think this was closer to the Triple H and Mankind match we were expecting because this felt closer to what we would see from them, you know, over the next few years. A very cool thing too was uh, Mankind stole triple h's taunt like he used to do in wcw and wr revenge the curtsy. Did, the little, did the curtsy which i thought was really really cool there was a lot of really hard-hitting moves like irish whips to the uh, and a power slam by china off mick foley into the steps where his knee just smashes into the steps it's, a, it's an absolutely brutal match it's also one of the most creative ones that i've seen because it seems like every single move had a cause and effect even a nut shot by mankind to Triple H isn't like, uh, I think it was he falls off the top turnbuckle and smacks Triple H in the balls because yeah. Triple H doesn't move to him. Like everything leads up to something else. Everything's got a chain reaction, which I thought was really cool. There was a great example of that that I made note of. When they were on the outside, China grabbed a chair. Triple H distracted the ref. China gave Triple H the chair. Then the ref went to tell China off. So Triple H hit Mankind with the chair behind the ref's back. And then the ref went to tell Triple H off. And because the ref wasn't looking at China, then China clotheslined Mick Foley. And it was yeah. just the perfect way distracting the ref. You know, the ref didn't ha have to act dumb or anything. This was perfect bad guy cheating. And it almost made you forget how good Triple H and China were in the, you know, like wrestler manager role and cheating and getting away with it because they were together for years. This would go yeah. into, you know, uh, around the year 2000. So they got really, really good. Well into, um, well into like WrestleMania 15 as well, which is two years away. Mm. Um, and then we also get uh, an, another cool little move where it's just spills to the outside and in fact, the match ends in a double countout, but this is a common reoccurrence throughout the pay-per-view where you're just led to believe and you're presented with the fact that Triple H and Mankind are just brawling around the saddle dome. Yeah, so we, we end up cutting back to this match throughout the show. So if you just take it in kayfabe, these guys brawl for two hours, basically. They just mm. keep fighting. They go backstage. And again, this is the evolution of Triple H into the Triple H we would know. 
I think hmm. most fans look at Triple H as, oh, he has hardcore matches. You know, there's weapons, there's blood. This is the first step to that, I think, this night. And also, they do a double DQ and the crowd doesn't boo because no. it's exciting. They're brawling in the crowd. Triple H starts bleeding. It's all action. This was really, really good. What a great opening oh. match a stellar match this one and then we get the another big staple of 1997 uh, 1996 WWE which is the little fluff piece of you know the heart foundation like oh look at them they're throwing baseballs they're, sh- they're shaking hands and the big thing out of this was Bret Hart is loved in Calgary oh they love Bret Hart like he was a rock star they said that Bret signed every single autograph and i think they said there was thirty thousand people or something mm. like yeah. yeah vince uh sorry bret hart was yeah the man in calgary there's another little amusing bit in that which i made note of which was a tug of war between uh wwf superstars and first responders <laughs> which the wwe won because it's one of those it's, it's a you're damned if you do damned if you don't like if you let the first responders win it's just like yeah well done first responders but Come on, guys, you're meant to be tough dudes. Whereas you've just made a whole bunch of first responders look weak by beating them in a tug of war match. Don't so, call 911, call Animal and Hawk. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All I'm going to say is the final thing I'm going to say for that is just, it is a fantastic bit of VO work from Michael Hayes. <laughs> I made note of that because not only did Michael Hayes do the voiceover for this package, he also did it for the Mankind and Triple H opening video, like for their hmm. feud video. Todd Pettingill leaves the company a month later. So I think by this point, he was too busy. And I'm guessing Michael Hayes was like, hey, guys, I can do it. He was too much. Like He was, he was way too much. <laughs> <laughs> Diana Smith, Miss Calgary, coming home. Like, it was yeah, way too over the top. And he's overdoing it too. Like, she's a sister of the Hart family. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, all right, we get it. We understand. We got that from the heart part. But anyway. It's like he um, was taking the piss out of voiceovers. <laughs> also, there was a crowd um, sign. I think it was during this package when they cut to it. They're in Calgary. We've established that Bret Hart is the most popular man to ever live in Calgary. These hmm. are his hometown fans. And there was a kid with a sign that said, Bret rules. And Brett was spelt with two T's. With two T's. It's yes, Brett I with saw that too. One T. Come on. <laughs> and, uh, and it's just that was one of my biggest bugbears of that era. But um, <laughs> um, we get to a little, speaking of Brett with one T, um, a little backstage segment with the Hart Foundation and Steve Austin. There's just something about the interactions between Bret Hart and Steve Austin. Now, we know from many interviews and the age in which we live now that Brett and Steve very much had a very good relationship and still do to this day. Austin's very credits um, heart for his rise. And Brett always says that Austin is the best wrestler that he's ever had to work with bar none, et cetera, et cetera, which is, I reckon a nice little backhanded um, shot at Shawn Michaels there too. <laughs> but um, when you see them together cutting promos, it's like they have a deathly hate for each other, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. Their chemistry is amazing. And watching this segment, so Brett and the Foundation are backstage doing an interview. Austin wanders in talking trash. All of the agents are holding him back. And Brett says a line that almost feels like, you know, if you said it to the wrong person, they would get offended in real life. But Brett was like, yeah, look at you, Austin. It only takes two men to hold you back. Like just, Mm. it's such a good line and it makes it feel real. Because that's yeah. something someone would say if they were just talking shit. And, you know, and then he's like, why would we beat him up five on one? You know, we want to prove that we could beat him up properly. Or do whatever. it in the ring, yeah. So good. And yeah, also, it was, it was... Brett, Brett Hart in 1997, to me, that's the best version of his character. He looks mm. the best. He talks the best. He's hateable, which he should be because, you know, seems like kind of a douchebag in this era. Yeah. It's just perfect. Yeah. I've, I've said this many a time um, in, in just my private life, which, and just, you know, like with friends and whatnot, where it's just like, you'd feel so much more sorry for the way that Bret Hart was treated in 1997 if he wasn't such a douche. <laughs> but it's, su- it's such a, I don't think it'll ever happen again, where 1997 is Bret Hart's best and worst career worst year. Yeah. at the same time. 
If we're mm. going on match quality, I wanted to talk about it at the end of the show, but we're in like July of 1997. Bret Hart has had a classic basically on every pay-per-view he's been on in yep. 97. But the problem is everything outside of the ring is just falling apart. So it is the peak and the descent all in one because yep. post-1997, his career is basically worthless. Correct. And it's all summed up. The best metaphor for it is Royal Rumble 1997. He is the winner of the Royal Rumble, but he's not declared <laughs> the winner because true. Austin cheats. That sums <laughs> up 1997 for Bret Hart. Um, but let's, let's get to the next match, which is an interesting one. It's Taka Michinoku versus the great Sasuke. Now, this is a light heavyweight match. This is the WWF's answer to the WCW Cruiserweight division. They're doing the light heavyweight division, which they're heavily borrowing from Japan. While um, while WCW went the, the luchador route and also got a bunch of Japanese wrestlers as well. Well, WWE are fully steering into, let's just get some Japanese talent here because they seem to know what they're doing. Before we get to the match, Mankind and Triple H are still fighting. <laughs> they are still fighting. We see them appear in the crowd again. And the crowd loses their minds. Like this is, the crowd is legendary during the show. Every time mm. they see Triple H and Mankind, they just go crazy again. You know, China's there trying to pull them apart. Like them just making these little cameos to start fighting again is so fun. It always reminds me, the most modern day equivalent I can think of is Dean Ambrose versus Luke Harper. I think it, um, maybe it was Money at the Bank 2014 or something like that. Where I remember thinking that was a callback to this. It must have been. Yeah, because remember he gets in the car, they drive yeah. off, then they come back, they, come they back. interrupt another match because the payoff to that match is there is a Heath Slater and um, <laughs> there's a Heath Slater versus Kurt Hawkins match that's happening in the ring. <laughs> and then it cuts back to Harper and Dean Ambrose brawling. So the, the running joke is that, oh man, we all missed an absolute, like a six-star match between Hawkins and Heath Slater. <laughs> <laughs> to go Look, get backstage it's not something you could do often but hey every what 10 ish years i think mm. it's a fun gimmick to try on a pay-per-view it really is and now this is a, this match has all the hallmarks of a complete and utter disaster <laughs> two wrestlers that no one has any idea who they are two foreign wrestlers at that too because in 1997 they're not as tolerant of um you know <laughs> our friends from over east uh as they are now you've got vince mcmahon clearly not quite knowing because the amount of fake laughs the <laughs> that he throws in is ridiculous what about but his backhanded compliment to the great sasuke during his entrance he goes this guy's the stuff legends are made of or so we're told why would, oh, yeah, you, so <laughs> why would you say that you own the company. I always put over how Vince is so good at putting over the talent, not not Sasuke. Yeah, this very much seemed like uh, like Vince was told by someone else, yeah. like these guys are great, and he's like, oh, I don't buy it. <laughs> but what what I will say is though, Jr. and King are fantastic on commentary here. I was shocked. Jerry, Jerry Lawler actually references things like. Um, uh, the match between Muhammad Ali and Anoki, the famous boxer versus wrestling match. They talk about it, like how the styles are different. The only part that made me go, oh, I don't know if you could say that, is when King asks JR, and this is why I thought it was really strange, because King, so Jerry Lawler is the one that asks JR, do you reckon these guys know how to speak English? Yeah. And JR goes, maybe enough to order dinner. <laughs> that was, Yeah, that was... You know, I don't know how to take that. <laughs> but I, I made note of King's commentary as well, because Jerry Lawler, especially in this era, was just full gimmick mode. He's the heel commentator. He makes fun of everyone. But you're right. He gave the insight. He explained how Japanese wrestlers, they use their kicks the same way a boxer uses the jab. They start mm -hmm. their matches slow, and then they build up the offense to you know wear down their opponent. And there was no joke, just actual insight. And I've had this theory for a while, especially in like the 2010s with Jerry Lawler's commentary. Hmm. You can almost tell who Jerry Lawler actually enjoys as a fan. And it's usually smaller guys. You might yeah. not think it, but listen to his commentary. 
during matches with guys like Daniel Bryan and people like that during the era, he'll put them over and say, oh my God, they're so exciting. But he won't do that in matches you can tell he doesn't care about. Yeah, yeah. He's, he fully goes into joke mode or slight offensive, uh, very offensiveness. But yeah. talking of those kicks, there's some very stiff kicks by uh, the great Sasuke to Taka Michinoku. And even then, Vince still sounds disinterested. In fact, <laughs> the, the most notable contribution that Vince has in this match is there's a springboard to the outside and Vince goes, what a samurai warrior. <laughs> I noticed that. And then JR also said, oh, that move is like, that move is uh, comparable to a cross body. It's like, yeah, okay. You don't need to tell us that JR. He did a cross yeah. body. Just it's like, we can see this JR. <laughs> <You know? laughs> But yeah, this is, this is fans. A... That was a cross body. Like, yeah, I know. <laughs> but, but like, and but the level of commentary is fantastic here too, especially yeah. since you know there's there's a lot of storytelling that needs to be done. Uh, Taka Michinoku and the Great Sasuke absolutely deliver in spades here. I reckon it does start off very slow, but the audience gets into it. They build up to it, and it's a, it's very different from a WCW cruiserweight match where it goes bang from get go. But um, Great Sasuke wins, and uh, I thought this was an absolutely solid match like going into this you're thinking maybe i'm thinking i'm overthinking that uh everything in this card was great but no this match was actually fantastic this match was great um i remember you know this this match became the stuff of legend over the years because it was like oh tucker and sasuke and they were on a wwf pay-per-view and Mm. you know they had time and it was this really good match this still holds up because not only are they doing like exciting moves but they're so smooth. Everything looked perfect. These are two of the best, you know, for their style from the era. Like if WWE committed to building their light heavyweight division around these two guys, it could have worked. I know Sasuke yeah. leaves really quick. I don't, there's some political reasons for that or whatever. And Tucker was still good, but he just didn't have anyone to work the charis- with. Or, or the charisma, really. Like, he was fantastic. Yeah. Like Because really, it went it, when he was paired up with Funaki, Funaki's the guy that had all the charisma. Taka was great in the ring. And you can see that when he does that uh, miniature, um, Michinoku driver, it, he's smooth as butter. Mm. Yeah. And to the point where JR goes, well, he invented the move. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, <laughs> and the crowd was legitimately impressed with that move. They were impressed with a lot. But when he hit the Michinoku driver, they all went, oh, like, oh, my yeah. God. Because yeah. it looks like he kills him, you know. It does. And the fact that, that Sasuke kicks out of it is also like, oh, geez, Louise. Yeah, just he, notch. My only issue with the match is that not only does Sasuke kick out, he then doesn't sell anything. He literally stands mm. up, takes over offense, and just wins. <laughs> mm. I was like, oh, okay. He's doing like a... Uh, Mil Morascus in in the Royal Rumble, like I'll do my flashy moves, but I ain't going to sell it for anyone. <laughs> yeah, I'm not selling. And also, just if you're into that sort of thing, this match was rated 4.5 stars by Dave Meltzer. I don't think this is a four and a half star match. Mm. Maybe it was at the time, but I, I think with rating matches like this that highly, it doesn't hold up because there's no story, there's no yep. f- no feud. So if you're watching it 20 years later, yeah, they do some cool moves, but we've seen cool moves. Yeah. You know, there's no emotion around it. There's, there's no emotion around it. It doesn't yeah. hold up as being that highly rated. But in the context of this pay-per-view, yeah, what a start Fantastic. we're, we're mm. going with. And also the, the variety of matches we get on this pay-per-view is a big thing too. Yeah, we started off with a brawl, an absolute Pier 6 sort of... Uh, and then we go into what is essentially a cruiserweight match, mm. and that delivers as well. Yeah. Um, we then get another Mankind versus Triple H fighting in the parking lot, which is still cool. And it's still cool. The crowd is just losing their mind. They love it. They oh. cannot get enough of Mankind and Triple H right now. This was so good. They're brawling outside. And because they taped this in Canada, it was still daytime. So you mm. see Mankind and Triple H just brawling outside in the daytime. They get thrown into some kegs. And if you were just looking at this, this looked like what you imagine Mankind and Triple H is. They're brawling mm. with weapons. They're doing, you know, back body drops on some pallets. Like, here it is. This is the real Triple H. And we also didn't mention, 
um, Triple H, we're only a month after King of the Ring, and he is not wearing the crown. He's like, no. he's like, I'm the King of the Ring, but that's not my gimmick at all. In fact, the only thing that reminded you that he's King of the Ring is his ring entrance and the fact that it said 1997 King of the Ring on his nameplate. He's not wearing a robe. He's <laughs> not cha- there is there is no like crowns on his tights. He's just regular stock standard Triple H here. <laughs> that's it. We're getting you know closer and closer to the game. Um, just one sign I want to make note of again here. During that Sasuke match, some guy walked past the frame and he had oh, yeah. a giant sign that said, this is work rate. And I just thought, what a mark. Like, yeah, no. If we watched it in 97, we wouldn't have known what that meant. But looking at it now, it's like, that guy is hilarious. That dude's and, brilliant. <laughs> and a month before, we didn't talk about it, but at the King of the Ring, I want to imagine it was the same guy. There was a sign at King of the Ring. It said, Dear Vince, please don't ruin Sasuke. Like that is some <laughs> insider stuff for 1997. That uh, that's it's Wade Keller walking past <laughs> for that sign. Yeah. Um, we get to we we get to another little video recap of Ahmed Johnson getting injured. Uh, which, if you remember, at the end of King of the Ring 1997, he took on he, he had a bit of a stoush with the Undertaker and. Uh, from what we're led to believe, he got he gets injured. Now, is this a shoot injury? Or did they common sense prevail and say, maybe we shouldn't put Ahmed in a, um, a WWF title match? I think it was legit. This was meant to be Ahmed's moment. A year mm. in, you know, sort of a year into his peak. Um, I think we saw there in that video, if you look closely, he was actually a member of the Nation of Domination. Oh, yeah. So I he actually did not remember that. He was dressed like him. So he joined the nation. I think he was going to become the main guy. And yeah, he was going to wrestle the Undertaker for the world title. And he got injured. And he talk about sliding door moments. I know. Never recovered. What would have happened? So weird. That is crazy to think we might be seeing, you know, star of Fast and Furious, Hobbs <laughs> and Shaw, Ahmed Johnson. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe Rock would never have got that spot. Who knows? There is a Johnson in this movie franchise, but his name is Ahmed Johnson. <laughs> Ahmed the Rock Johnson. <laughs> um, we see that little reek of Ahmed getting injured. We then get a little backstage segment with Doc Hendricks with Paul Bearer and Vader. Now, this is the part where it's revealed that Taker has killed his family. It shows a little video package where from the Royal Rumble 1997 and the difference is like night and day. We've got the old school three three ring ropes, blue ring. It's very much still new generation. Paul Bearer has the makeup and the black hair. Isn't it like a different universe, that little yeah. recap package when you see when they throw back to uh, the live pitches? It's really weird and it's really jarring. And I think that's why we are at the turning point here, midway into 97. It's a totally different show. It's a different Paul Bearer. Um, a different vibe, different ring, different look. The only Even thing, just the different storyline too. Yeah, like different... you know, Taker killing his <laughs> now Undertaker has a brother and he killed everyone. Mm. Um, mm. This was also, I, I thought, a nice touch to justify Vader getting a title match because he pinned the Undertaker and then they, you know, just used that. Sometimes yeah. you know WWE can be accused of like, oh, not continuing things and not referencing the past. This was a good example of them doing it here. Yeah, and they did a stellar job too because uh, it's it's Undertaker versus Vader for the title. The backstory with the Undertaker is, if, if you're just tuning in, um, which I thought was actually really good because if you're just going month to month, paper, you would not know why, what the hell Paul Bear was talking about. So they recapped that hmm. Undertaker burnt down his his um, family's funeral home. <laughs> when you say that out loud, it sounds so ridiculous. <laughs> Except his brother Kane is still alive. Now, despite all that, Undertaker still gets a massive fan favorite cheer in Canada. My God, seriously, aside from Bret Hart, Undertaker was the most over guy in Canada. Well, I thought they were playing with the sound during this match. Some of the chants for The Undertaker were insane. Mm. This was the most over The Undertaker's been in this run that we've seen of him as uh, the champion in 97. This was wild. They loved him. And also, in his entrance, one thing I love, this era of The Undertaker, when he does his entrance and gets to the ring steps, he doesn't raise his arms slowly to turn the lights on. He just no, shoots his arms out and they just blow 
you know, there's like pyro and they blow up. It's like cane style pyro. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, Another cool thing about this one is like both of these guys have their working boots on. I actually wrote down, this is probably Vader's best match in the WWF. And a nice little tidbit from JR as well, because he actually says something along the lines of Vader's done it all. He's dominated in Japan. He's won world championships, but he's in the WWF to win our championship. That's why he's here. Okay. I missed that note of JR saying that line because JR kind of annoyed me in this match. There were two things he said (laughs) because I thought he was a little bit heavy handed in trying to put over Vader. Obviously, you know, they've got a history together and he's mm. called his matches. At one point, um, Undertaker, early in the match, because like you said, these guys had their working boots on. They went balls to the wall from the start. But anyway, yeah. early in the match, Undertaker hits the old school and then he pins Vader. And JR's like, oh my God, he kicked out. Any other man would have been down for the three for that. Who's Undertaker ever beat with old school? <laughs> and then... This is The Undertaker. Already by 1997, he is legendary in the Federation. Two-time world champion, already considered, you know, a legend and one of the greats. And JR calls Vader the greatest big man in wrestling history. You can't say that when the guy is wrestling The Undertaker. (laughs) That doesn't hold weight because Vader, by this point, had been in the WWE for a year and had won nothing. <laughs> like yeah. He's, yeah. He's got nothing on his resume to prove that. That's why I like, like the JR for some reason. And now that you mention it, like JR is really trying to sell this, like no, no, Vader is a threat. But the yeah, thing I is know. too, like there, there are, there are things, but like overly try and sell it. Like, <laughs> have you ever heard in this era of WWF, them mention other companies? It doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, he went, he went so full. He even mentioned how, um, oh, Vader was trained by, you know, the great Brad Rengans and he was known back then as baby ball and he knows yeah. his fundamentals. It's like, all right, calm down. Well, Vader's fine. He's good. It's, it's just so crazy that, but um, Vader, he, Vader still looks strong though. Like he is, he kicks out of two choke slams as well. It looks really impressive because they've had, such like a P6 brawl here. It looks even more impressive when Taker scoops him up for a tombstone, gets the win there. Paul Bearer is just losing his absolute mind. But my favorite line of the entire match, once, <laughs> once Taker starts celebrating, like, you know, the crowd's going, you know, cheering, everything's all good. Vince says, imagine being accused of murdering your family. <laughs> Like, what's going on in The Undertaker's head? And it's just like, oh my God, how ridiculous. But it's still so cool. A really, really great match. I'm going to go, like, I can't remember if there's a better Vader match, but I forgot how good this one is. It is Vader's best match in the WWF. I forgot about this too. I I remember thinking it was good. This was way better than I expected. Oh, Um, hell yeah. Yeah, I reckon... The two best Vader matches we've seen were the one at Sh- with Shawn Michaels at, at SummerSlam 96 and this one, but no one talks about this one. This is mm. such a weird pay-per-view. Everyone considers it one of the greatest pay-per-views of all time, but we don't single out these matches enough. And this one, yeah. we need to give credit because so far, three matches in, this is the match of the night. Four and a half stars for Tucker and Sasuke. I don't think so. To me, <laughs> looking at this in 2021, wow, this is the match mm. of the night so far. And, and yeah, we yeah. didn't even talk about some of the spots they do, but this is athletic, fast-paced, big man, crazy stuff. This also showcased as well, because, you and you're right, you talked about, uh, you just touched on before, Simon, how Taker is a legend, like he's been there since 1990. Like, so already he's approaching close to a decade here. He's seen through, like, you know, that era of stars with Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage and stuff like that, Ric Flair. Now he's gone through the new generation. He's here as the champion at the dawn of the Attitude Era. And he stepped his work rate up. He no longer has to do, like, the zombie sort of stuff. He's been buried alive. He's been reincarnated. So he's actually working. Like, he actually shows that, like, this is the same sort of, like, you know, like, this is, like, I'm not just a big lumbering zombie dude. I can wrestle. And it proves it here. And Vader steps it up to it as well. And I think Vader's stiff style works great with a guy like The Undertaker because he is, he can take it. Not to say that, you know, 
Vader throws potatoes, and if you don't freaking go down like <laughs> go down for one, then you're being a little girl or something like that. But but it's it's a hard hitting match, and because they're both big men, it just works really well. Yeah, and I think maybe it was around this point when Undertaker figured out how to do these big man matches. Because, you know, we had, we've we've lived through it and we watched it. He had to wrestle King Kong Bundy and Giant Gonzalez and these guys who couldn't do and much. Diesel. And th- look, that match is okay. It's pretty good. <laughs> but I think Undertaker, with that limiting zombie style, it never worked. I think it was mm. around here he figured out, I'm super athletic. I'm going to be faster than any other big man I wrestle. Let me take the small guy role. And Undertaker yep. onwards, anytime he's in there, he sort of plays the role of the small man in a big man, small man match. Yeah. Taker yeah. will run around. He'll jump around. He'll do a dive. He'll do what he has to and, and make it exciting. And he did that here. Yeah. Yeah, he certainly did. And it's a really, really good match. And you're right. It doesn't get talked about enough. The mere fact that it was only when you see like, oh, that's right. Vader takes on Taker in this match. Like that's how much of a forgotten classic it is. But mm. Um, speaking of something that's definitely not a forgotten classic, there is a video recap of the gang wars that were running roughshod through WWF at this time. Do you have anything positive to say about the gang wars of that era? Did you well, like? Did you remember there were this many factions? Because I, I didn't. I, I remember because I had the Survivor Series 97 on <laughs> videotape and that was gang oh. rules with a Z. Yeah. <laughs> so to me, it was all about the gangs in 1997. There was DOA, The Nation, The Heart Foundation. We'd Los eventually Bar- get Los Bariquas and uh, <laughs> the Truth Commission and DX, of course, the big one. So yeah, yeah. I will admit though, at this point in the pay-per-view, I zoned out a little bit because it had been mm. so exciting. And then it sort of grinds to a halt as they reset for the massive main event. We got, what did we get? We got a video package. And then yep. the anthem, and then like here are politicians in the crowd. Hmm. They killed about twenty minutes here. You actually, uh, there's there is one slight sliver of content which is a, a promo with Team Austin. It's a hmm. very odd promo because Stone Cold says nothing. Uh, road the Road Warriors just yell. That's about it. Ken Shamrock looks strange. He's still wooden and robotic. He doesn't quite. And and his robe just looks like a like one of those ones you wear at a like it looks like a kimono. That's what it looks <laughs> like. His silk red kimono. <laughs> and and <laughs> the best part is too, it like they do the promo and all animal says is, what a rush. Austin says nothing and they all walk off and just like right Kill time. That's all this was. It was like just kill five minutes, guys. I I actually did write here Canadian shout outs. The shout-outs are so much where they go through like, and this is the mayor. This is, you know, the local politician. They even do the Hart family as well too, so which is fair enough. But um, we then get the entrances. It's Goldust out first, Ken Shamrock as well in his uh, kimono, then LOD. You want to talk about one of these things is not like the other. Austin comes out and, man, oh, man, he just gets absolutely booed and he looks like he's loving it. Yeah, this is maybe the last time for a few years we would see Austin get legitimately booed. And yeah, he's relishing it. One more night to act as just a straight up heel and have the crowd buy it. It's a lot of fun. And mm. he's kind of the only guy to get any entrance reaction from Team USA. I felt like the crowd didn't really care about anyone else. 100%. Underline that, bold it, and highlight it because... It's you want to talk about a lot of heavy lifting, and this is what makes this pay per view so interesting because there are some very key players and a lot of dead weight, but you never notice it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Brian Pillman comes out first, gets a hero's welcome oh, in what I've written down here. Jim Neidhart with probably his first and only solo entrance ever. Because when the music hit, I'm like, it's gotta be Jim Neidhart because I don't recognize <laughs> yeah, I this music. I will say, during Anvil's <laughs> intro, a nice little shout out to Vince from Vince that only makes sense now because we have all these podcasts to listen to and Bruce Pritchard and JR they've referenced it, but Stu Hart would reference the anvil as that big nasty rhino. And that's Mm. what Vince called him when he came out. He said, Oh, that big nasty rhino, Jim, the anvil. I was like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Little insider stuff there. Maybe the guy with the, you know, work rate. rate He would have liked that. He's sitting there like just going, 
Well done, Vince. <laughs> Polite golf clap there. I knew uh, that. <laughs> British Bulldog comes out uh, to another massive um, ovation too, along with uh, his wife and Brett Owen's sister, which uh, Doc Hendricks is very, very gracious to let us know about 58 Mrs. times. Calgary Stampede or whatever that's she wants. Right. <laughs> that's right. We had the sash too. It just looked awkward. It was just like, I don't know what I need to do here. <laughs> Owen Hart then gets another hero's welcome, but by far the biggest pop of the night is the minute the riff starts to start off Bret Hart's theme is he just comes out and he soaks it up. And did you notice the giant family value poster? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Massive banner, like, you know, like I'm on talking a from, Yeah, I'm talking like from, it, it's sp- almost spanned one tier of the seats. That's how huge it was in just family values. That's what Bret was all about. And the Canadians <laughs> loved him for it. Again, how frustrating like i know we saw it in the um living with uh, sorry the wrestling with shadows documentary but mentally for bret hart this must have been a really hard time because oh would have he's killing it in this storyline he comes to canada they love him they schedule the survivor series in canada as well they're building this storyline and these live shows around him but at the same time they've told him yeah, nah, go to WCW. See yeah. how you go there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, look, it was very nice. At, and we loved uh, having you <laughs> having our wagon hitched to you for so many years, since 1992, basically, when you carried our company. But um, uh, your, your services are no longer needed. Thank you. And on your way out, we're going to make you a heel and the most hated <laughs> person in the company. But at the same time, <laughs> kind of loved in your country. I don't. It's so yeah. weird. None yeah, of it makes sense still. It is just, but like the crowd is absolutely electric. They start off with Austin and Brett and they have completely lit up the arena here because it, it, it well, first off, there's an incredible slowdown when it's Anvil and Shamrock tagged in. <laughs> they all don't that, know all what that, to do. No, they really don't. But I tell you what, there is not a dull moment in this match. Uh, there is a very cool little sequence as well where during a brawl, Austin injures Owen with a chair, which then leads Brett. It's a callback within later on in the match. There's a callback where Brett then gives a receipt with a fire extinguisher and a figure four. There's just so much shenanigans going on this match. Owen gets sent back because uh, he's quite unquote injured. Austin also goes back. There is just so much going on. There's actually a really, really cool little segment, which I've written down here because I think it'll be overlooked otherwise, between Bulldog and Goldust. Goldust even stands out here. Yeah, Goldust gets a hot tag. He hits the the Bulldog on the Bulldog, as the commentators Mm. called it. (laughs) Yeah, Goldust had his working boots on. Most of the guys in this match just went all out. This was like the last great showing from Animal and Hawk. And, you know, Pillman got a great moment here. Owen was a superstar. Brett was a superstar. Like, yeah, this match was awesome this still holds up it might not be perfect and there might not be a hurricane runner or whatever but this is like 40 minutes of the loudest reactions and the most excitement you've ever seen there's a cool bit too austin comes out after injuring himself he continues to fight he gets tangled up with bret hart here a line by jr that just had me in stitches when when bret is just beating the ever-loving tar out of out of austin jr says Austin being excellently executed. (laughs) It was so well done. Um, Owen then comes out on one leg to break up a sharpshooter here. The Hearts, the Hart family, which is a common thing with the Hart family. They jump the guardrail as well. Everything just looks crazy. Shamrock looks like he's legitimately going to punch someone too. (laughs) There is so much madness. Quick question. How many times do you reckon the phrase, oh, hell has broken loose? (laughs) That was a good thing about this match, though. It would settle down into a normal tag match. But then every five minutes, all hell is broken loose and they'll brawl mm. on the outside and two guys will be over there and three guys over there. And with the hearts in the crowd, I love the way they did this because when Brett, sorry, when Austin injured Owen, uh, Bruce Hart threw a drink at Austin. Yep. So then later in the match, at the end of the match, when Austin goes to the outside again, a drink gets thrown on him. He assumes it was whoever was behind him. And this time he thinks it was Stu Hart. So he grabs Stu, but then all the other hearts jump to Stu's defense. And 
um, Bruce falls over the rail, which yes. is hilarious. <laughs> and he can never get to his feet. I don't know if he injured himself, but he kind of just stays on his knees punching Austin. Uh, and then, yeah, Owen rolls up Austin for a huge reaction. It was great seeing Owen as a hero. He never really mm. got a proper face run. It's kind of cool to see. Yeah, he was always the dastardly little brother there, but the Hart Foundation gets the win. Austin comes back. Austin comes back and security break it up. Are they actual, like, are they allegedly meant to be Canadian police? I don't know if they were real Mounties or not, but they, they looked like Canadian cops. And yeah, they yeah. handcuffed Austin. And then we got the iconic shot. They would use it for years of mm. Austin with the handcuffs behind his back and he's still flipping off the Hart family, yeah. which is yeah. great. It is such a cool little moment too. And then there is just like a massive celebration in the ring with the Hart family. I've written down here, the note that I made is, this is the peak of Bret Hart's WWF run of his WWE career, because it is literally all downhill from here. This is the highest high that he will get because tragically, like very much like King Lear, it, it it just all goes pear-shaped for him after this. Look, he's still got four really good months. It might not sound like a long time, but we have to savor it. Because remember, <laughs> we are watching WCW pay-per-views as well. This doesn't end in 97. Let's no. enjoy the last few months of the real Bret Hart. Because from December 97 onwards, might as well be a different guy. Yeah, Might as well and, be and- Bret Clark. As uh, <laughs> we'll see Michael Buffer call him in a few months. It, it, it almost is a bit of a tragedy, the story of Bret Hart, because when you think about the poor dude, what he's had to go through, like it all stems from this, this 1997 run, the golden run, the one where every, like imagine, just imagine the best work of your career happening in the worst part of your life. Basically, and- once you've given notice <laughs> as well. <Yeah>. Like- <laughs> Oh, it's just so strange. But <laughs> you've but one divorced little... your wife and you're yeah. still living in the house. You haven't moved yet. She <laughs> wins the lottery and she's like, oh, well, I guess it's my money. You're here for a few months, but after that, I'll see you later. And you've just got to act happy for her. Like he is killing it and making great stuff. And then he just he has to leave. He doesn't even have a choice. They're like, no, yeah. go to go to WCW. We'll yeah, even yeah. help you negotiate. Like, what? <laughs> the whole thing is. It's something that I don't reckon will ever, ever happen again. But yeah, it's the peak of Bret Hart's career here. Uh, one little fun fact before we get our final thoughts on this. Um, because obviously they're bringing all their kids in and the grandkids and stuff like that. A funny line from, from Jerry the King Lawler, which is just like, Stu and Helen are responsible for everything in that ring. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Which I thought was pretty funny. But some, also means. some cameos too. Like, you know, if you look closely, you can see like Teddy Hart and Natalia was, and I Harry just Smith. About to say yeah. That. <laughs> yeah, Natty Neidhart's in the ring there because all the kids are there too. Her in-ring WWF debut, if you will. Hmm. But um, look, top to bottom, this is all killer, no filler. The two hour, like the fact that it's a two-hour pay-per-view means they had to only put the good stuff in. There was you can't fault it from top to bottom. Like you get a variety of stuff too. You get the big multi-man tag match at the very end, which is huge. It's got the brawls. It's got the, that last match in itself has a variety of stuff. It's got brawls. It's got dirty tactics. It's got shenanigans. It's actually got good technical wrestling. You get a great big man match between Triple H, sorry, uh, between Vader and The Undertaker. You get a street fight and a hardcore match between Mankind and Triple H. You get a light heavyweight match. Like, what else do you want in a pay-per-view? Yeah, in one pay-per-view, in less than two hours, just under two hours, we see what the Attitude Era would kind of look like. They would take the best parts of everything we see here, and over the next few years, that would be the blueprint for the WWE. Fast-paced, brawling, excitement, cheating, cops, handcuffs, weapons, people jumping people in the crowd. Like, yeah. I'm glad this lived up to the hype because I was a little bit down, you know, like thinking, oh my God, when, when I kept saying 1997 is when the WWE really turns it on. Mm. July 1997, the WWE is killing it. And the, the worst part too is because as, you, as we sort of said at the start too, we just watched uh, All Out, which is sort of being All Out by AEW, which is sort of being seen as like a, a momentum shift sort of pay-per-view. 
I'd have to say that this is a momentum shift pay-per-view back in the day. If you put Canadian Stampede into context, this is where it all sort of starts to work for the WWF. Absolutely. And just, you know, just some accolades. I don't know how much they matter. I could find more, I'm sure. But just if you look on Wikipedia, the reception to Canadian Stampede, this was awarded best major show in the Wrestling Observer Observer Newsletter for 97. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 2013, WWE put out their list of 15 best pay-per-views ever. This was at number 10. And Troy L. Smith, a writer for Cleveland.com, released (laughs) a list of the 50 greatest wrestling pay-per-views of all time, which included promotions all around the world. And this ranked at number seven. So, you know, this is on everyone's (laughs) list of all-time great pay-per-views, including (laughs) Cleveland.com. What I thought was funny because I've just jumped onto the Wikipedia page there. I'm so glad, and I feel sorry for the uh, for the live crowd because they had to watch uh, a dark match, which was the Godwins versus the New Blackjacks. So maybe if that was put onto the actual pay per view, we'd be talking a lot differently <laughs> about the Canadian Stampede. But um, look, I don't think we can we can say it enough. This is a fantastic show. It stands up today. It's bite size as well, so you could watch it in one sitting and. It actually goes by so quick because every match is so good. Yeah, it's not even that it's two hours. It's easy to watch because it's exciting. Every match is fun. Every match is different. Yeah, start to finish, I would recommend watching the whole show. You know, Mm -hmm. like there is nothing that I would say, oh, just watch this. Watch the whole thing. As a two-hour wrestling show, this is fantastic. And there's that magical time too, two hours. It seems to work. So uh, I don't know why more people don't stick with it. But um. Hey, look, that is that is pretty much, I don't think we can praise Canadian Stampede anymore. The next WWE pay-per-view that we'll be looking at is another sort of monumental uh, pay-per-view as well for some very, very, some on-screen incidents and behind-the-scene incidents, but it is, of course, SummerSlam 1997, the world-famous SummerSlam 1997, another big game-changer pay-per-view. But before we get to SummerSlam, we've got to get to Bash at the Beach 1997 which as we mentioned on our previous King of the Ring, um, no, as we meant, yeah, we mentioned on our King of the Ring pay-per-view recap. That's actually, no, what was it? What was the last one? Spring Stampede. Spring Stampede, yeah, Spring Stampede that uh, we'd be seeing Dennis Rodman back in the ring. So it is an absolute, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see the direction WCW goes in after this. Yeah, it's a great time for wrestling here, mid-1997. It is interesting, though, that WCW would play the um, sort of celebrity card in this era where Mm. WWE would focus on wrestling. And we would see that swap over over the years, you know? In the 80s, WWE was about the celebrity thing, the early WrestleManias. By the mid-90s, WCW would lean into that. You know, we've seen... How many pro footballers in the last few months on these (laughs) WCW shows? Now they've got Dennis Rodman and then they'd eventually get Jay Leno. WWE in this era would focus on the wrestlers and it paid off. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to be having an exciting couple of months here on Reliving the War. Remember, if you do want to follow me and Simon, you can do so on the socials at Simon Tackler for Simon at Doc Nims for me. At Grey Wolf ENT is the best place to check out all of our archives and anything new that's coming up. There's some cool stuff happening, not just if you're a wrestling fan, but uh, if you're a nostalgia fan, a pop culture one, check out the feed because there's some pretty good stuff there. Simon, we got some fun coming up for Bash of the Beach 1997. Who is the third man? We might even get Owen back for that one too, just to see him not relive the war, but live it for the first time. Yeah, I think he would have enjoyed Canadian Stampede more, but that's not the point of this show. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, I have been Nimsis All. On behalf of Simon Tackler, this has been Reliving the War. We'll catch you next time right here on the Grey Wolf Network. This has been another presentation from the Grey Wolf Entertainment Network. GreyWolfEntertainment.net.